you all for coming. Uh, oh, that went quite very fast. Thank you. So I'm Natalie Plum. I work here in communications, and I just wanted to say thank you all for coming. This is a really great turnout. Uh, we have young adult socials here every single third Sunday of the month, right after mass. So we hope you continue to come. This is a great turnout. We always have food too. As Father, brothers Casey and Tito, Tito are talking, please feel free to get up, get food, the bathrooms so that you know are up these stairs through the kitchen and on your right, and uh, I think you can feel free to keep grabbing books, it looks like they have a ton back there still. Oh, please take more. <laughs> and I'm going to introduce Chris, who was a really great key person in bringing the brothers here to speak with us. Thank you for asking to host this event. And you can always come to me and come to our parish and ask us to host speakers like this. We want to do more things like this. So it's always welcome. So Chris, come on up. Good evening. Thank everyone for coming. So as, as we heard upstairs, this is Brother Casey and Brother Tito. They are touring all of the MLB stadiums. So it's technically an international tour. They will uh, make it into Canada. Um, so Brother Casey is a, a prominent YouTuber, so he started with his journey becoming a Franciscan, and it's um, taken off, it's been very successful. He's also on another YouTube uh, pop culture uh, channel that he co-hosts upon Friar Review, and he and Brother uh, Tito do a podcast, Everyday Liminality, on movies, uh, both, both quite good. Um, and we're very excited for them to be here at um, St. Anne's, so... With that, I will kick it off to you all. Well, good evening. It's good to be here. We are, let's see, what, 5,200 miles in? Yep, something like that. In about a month, we've finished 14 stadiums. We've got 16 more to go and about 12,000 miles to go. So we're, we're keeping on, keeping on. But it's, uh, it's been a wonderful trip so far. What we're going to do tonight is uh, we're going to talk for just a few minutes, but then we're going to open up to questions and hopefully have the bulk of the time for questions. I say that, but once you put a microphone in front of me, it's very difficult to get me to stop talking. But I do want to hear from you. I see someone nodding. I'm very offended by that. Um, but that's okay. We, we know each other. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk for a little bit about uh, of our tour, about one of the things we've been talking about along the way. And um, what we've been talking about is... We do discernment. I always ask people three questions. What do you love? What are you good at? And what does the world need? And I think if you answer those three questions, you're going to find God pushing you in a certain way. When you find what do you love, it's not just, you know, I love pizza or I love my dog. There's a great sense of challenge. There's a great sense of moving you beyond yourself. And so if there's something you feel in your life that way, that might be God pushing you. It might be God drawing you. You know, what are you good at? God doesn't give you skills so that you can be on a Wheaties box. God gives you skills so you can share them for the life of the world. So you can hold them up, not under a bushel basket, but so that others can see. So if you're good at something, that probably means God wants you to use it as well. And often when I give these talks, we get to the third point, what does the world need? And I've talked too long, and we always skimp on the last one. And so what we'd like to do tonight is spend some time answering just that last one. What does the world need today? Now, normally we do this, and we've done this a few times this summer, where we'll talk for about an hour. We're not going to do that tonight. We're going to try 15 minutes. We're going to try. Really, really try. I don't know about this one, but I'm going to try. Um, and then we'll see what time we have left for questions, uh, but hopefully we'll have some time for discussion. 
Father Tia, would you like to lead us in prayer as we begin? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O oh, good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of community, for the opportunity to come together on this feast of the precious body and blood of your Son. We ask you to mold us into the body of your, of your Son, to mold us into one family, one body, one church. We ask you to open our hearts in this moment, in this time, so we can grow and learn and imitate your very Son, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So the way we're going to do this is I'm going to give one little talk, Father Tia's going to give a second little talk, I'll give a third little talk. Normally we offer breaks in between, but we're going to do the break at the end for the question, so let's just run through this. If you ask me what the world really needs, I think the first answer is pretty obvious. And I hate to say, you know, as a religious, you should expect this. It's Jesus. Okay, I'm sorry if that disappoints you, but it's not very original. But I think that that is what the world needs, especially on this Feast of Corpus Christi. There's the good news out there, but as Thomas Merton said, it's neither new nor, nor good for a lot of people. It's just words that we use. I don't know if any of us really take it to heart. And so, I won't say no one, but you know, I think there's something lost to it. And so I'd like to do a thought experiment here. I'd like you to imagine that you are extremely poor. Now, I realize this is a group of young adults, so that shouldn't be too difficult, but I mean like really, really poor. Like you work from sunrise to sunset every single day for the rest of your life, and you can eat one meal a day. The sort of thing that is soul crushing. This job that you are forced into that you have no option whatsoever to do. This thing where you are stuck in this life. How are you feeling right now? Feeling great? Yeah, probably not. Well, it's only going to get worse because in this scenario, not only do you have a terrible job, but you stink. I'm sorry, you just do. I hate to be the one to tell you, but you do. Now, luckily, your wife or husband stinks, your child stinks, your dog stinks. You don't even notice it anymore. You've gone nose blind. But when you go into town, everyone else notices it. When you go to the market, everyone else notices it. No one wants to get near you. No one wants to touch you. No one wants to welcome you into their home. We feeling good about life right now? Feel a lot of hope? I don't think so. This simple analogy, I think, helps capture what people were like in the time of Jesus. Many of them were stuck. Maybe they were unclean like the lepers, and there was no way to heal them, and so they couldn't go to temple, they couldn't offer sacrifice. Maybe they're like the shepherds that were kind of outcasts in society. They lived on the outskirts and didn't have uh, the, the close-knit relationships. They were kind of looked down upon. There were so many people, the poor. You could look at the Roman... Uh, uh, Opposition. You could look at the Roman oppression of people, and people lived with no hope for a future. And here comes Jesus to say, not only is there a hope for a future, but I love you, and I've come to save you. I've come to give you life. I've come to honor you that you are wonderful. How do you feel now that this man identifies with you, that he eats with you? He says that you are worthy. That's pretty incredible. And then he says, I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to lay down my life so that you might live. Now you feel incredible. And through this thing called baptism, you know that now when you die, you can rise as well. Because he has paved the way. That you are united with him and we have a place in heaven. And so when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, they will inherit the, the earth, we now believe him. We believe that there is hope for the future. And I believe that this is our, uh, this is our greatest attribute as Christians, and something that we need to lean upon. I, we, we've been driving a lot, and when we were in the South, we saw a number of billboards. Maybe they have them here in D.C., I can't remember. Uh, Jesus or hell, right? You've seen these, you know, if you die tonight, where are you going to go? 
And I think it's backwards. It's not a bad sentiment, it's just backwards. What we need is hell or Jesus. And what I mean by that is, we already experience a little bit of hell. We know what it's like to be stuck like the people of old were, to be poor, to be outcast, to be sick. We know what division and despair is like in this world. What we need is a savior. And what if we told people, hey, you already know what it's like to not have a savior, but hey, there's a way out. And I think what we do is we need to lean into our weaknesses, lean into those sins that we have, not through more of them, but recognize that we cannot save ourselves, but there is someone who can. It is hell. That's what we live in so much of the time. But there is a hope. There is a savior. We can get unstuck. And this is the good news. And so if you ask me what the world needs, it needs people like you and me to share our own stories of being stuck. Share our own weaknesses. Share our own stories of redemption. I want to hear more people say how they lived a terrible life and then they found Jesus. You know the Baptists are really good at this. I've got a lot of Baptist friends that can give a testimony immediately. I'm not sure about us Catholics sometimes. I'm not sure if we have that in our hearts. I think we need to get in touch with our, our sadness, our despair, the crushing guilt that we feel sometimes, all this, the weaknesses, and say, wow, Lord, on my own, I can't do it. But you can. Oh my gosh, you've saved me. If you ask me one thing, this is what the world needs. It needs people to trust in Jesus, and we only do this when we recognize that we're not good enough on our own. And so that was normally a 15-minute talk. We're going to move right on to Tito, who's going to build upon that. We need Jesus, but we don't just need Jesus. Right, Tito? That's right. Because we don't often get a direct experience of Jesus, and I'm going to use this one. Okay, if it's working. Yeah, it seems like it's working. And we encounter Jesus typically in others, and others can be very frustrating. Not uh, me, of course. No, not at all. Um, I love my mom. I'm Puerto Rican, so I'd be a bad Puerto Rican if I didn't love my mom. <laughs> but uh, I also argue with my mom all the time. My mom is very opinionated. I'm not, not at all. No. <laughs> but uh, we have a lot of differences, whether it's theological, because my mom does read books on theology, or you know, uh, political, or historical, whatever. You name a topic, Dietary. we, probably, we pro <laughs> probably agree on that. <laughs> but you name another topic, and we probably disagree on it at some point, right? We agree about certain things, disagree about other things, and we can argue like no one's business. Puerto Ricans, we're very good at arguing. <clears throat> Sometimes, though, it's very, very frustrating. Because the other thing that the world needs is to listen, right? And I want my mom to listen to me, right? And that's, you know, it's a challenge because I'm her son, right? She raised me. As she often says, I changed your diapers. I don't know. <laughs> um, like, I still, I still am an adult now with you know thoughts. And she's like, no, just no. And it's very frustrating. Now, I mean, admittedly, I don't. I'm not that great of a listener either. Sometimes, you know, I get stuck in my view, in my perspective, and I don't always hear you know her side of it or what she's trying to say. Or maybe I don't listen with an open heart and an open mind and hear what's deeper. You know, I struggle with that sometimes, especially with my mom. With other people, it's easier, right? When you meet people, sometimes it can be easier to get to know them, to listen to them. But when it comes to family, that can always be a challenge. <clears throat> when we uh, moved to Germany, uh, I was, when, we, when I was a kid, we moved to Germany, by the way. Uh, and we moved there when I was six years old. And it was a very, very unique experience because uh, we were the first Americans 
to live in this town that we moved to. And we're also Puerto Rican Americans, so that was a first as well. So I don't know what that town's perspective of Americans is now, but I'm pretty sure we grew <laughs> And they kept, the, our neighbors on the street really had a curiosity about us. They all wanted to meet us, right? So when we moved in, they came, and they knocked on our door. And I remember my mom answering the door, and there's like five or six German grown-ups with this uh, one German teenager who's like 12 or 13, probably 13 at the time. And he's the English speaker. All the adults are speaking through him. And he's explaining, oh, well, this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so. I only remember his name was Marcel, by the way. Um, and he goes, this is so-and-so, and they're your neighbors, and they just wanted to welcome you to the town, and they wanted to give you wine, because everyone in this town made their own wine. And so they're like, my mom's like, oh, thank you. And she takes the bottles of wine, and she goes, would you like to come in and eat? And the German's like, sure, yeah, sounds great. And she gave them chips and salsa, which they had never had before. <laughs> she made, she, my mom used to make this black and salsa, fantastic. Um, and they were just like, wow, this is really good. They ran home and got more wine. And that was my first experience of, you know, being in a new place, encountering new people, and I loved it, right? It shaped how I encounter new people. I try to do the same thing. I try to imitate what I first experienced, which is openness, generosity, welcoming, right? Um, but my mom has kind of a different experience, right? She has a different way of dealing with, with new people, and it's not always the most welcoming, which is odd to me. Because if I introduce my mom to someone, a new friend, or if she meets someone at work, she's super welcoming. But when she hears about you know new people like in the ether, right, immigrant groups and stuff like that, she kind of shuts down. I'm like, that's that's weird because of who we are, because of our own experience. And I had to reflect, and it wasn't until recently that I remembered another story. Prior to moving to Germany, we lived in Florida. And both my parents grew up in Puerto Rico, uh, speak Spanish as a first language, but both of them very fluent in English as well. My mom teaches Spanish now at a high school, and she's fantastic. She doesn't have an accent anymore. That's how much like, she's um, just gotten used to speaking English. I, I still imitate her with an accent because it's hilarious. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's really lost her accent. But I remember when my parents first moved here, moved to the United States, um, and especially when we were living in Florida, They'd been away from Puerto Rico for quite a while, and they would still go back to visit because Florida and Puerto Rico are close, but my mom was lonely, right? She was missing friends, she was missing family, and so my dad had arranged for her best friend to come over and stay with us for several weeks. And she came over, and they were just having a good time, and they were walking around, and I remember my mom telling me that one day, while they were walking, her, she was chatting with her friend who didn't speak any English, so they were speaking Spanish. Someone came up to them and said, you live here now, and so you need to learn how to speak English. And my mom was shocked and caught off guard. One, because she did speak English. She was just speaking it with, you know, speaking Spanish with a friend. Um, and so she didn't know how to react to that. And when I reflected on our home life, I noticed that's when we stopped speaking Spanish in our house. Because my parents were now concerned that I might have an encounter like that when I was growing up. Or I you know, might not be able to do well in school. Newsflash, I didn't do well in school anyways. I just <laughs> didn't make a difference. Um, but I might, you know, struggle with language and stuff like that. And so they were concerned about this, so we stopped speaking Spanish in the house and only spoke English from that point on. And that was challenging. 
because I realized my mom had this experience, which was so different from mine. She had an experience of you know, being told, you need to leave behind who you are in order to assimilate and fit into the culture. I was shown, shown and experienced, we are welcoming who you are, here's a little bit of who we are, and let's do an exchange. But the real lesson that I learned from this is how to be patient with my mom. Because my mom had a pretty horrible experience when she got here. My experience was completely different. I am uniquely blessed in that way. That experience shaped her. And when I'm able to reflect on that, when I listen, and I hear her you know, getting frustrated and saying, no, people just need to come and they need to assimilate, I remember her experience and the hard lesson that she had to learn and the way in which she learned how to survive in different contexts. We still don't agree. But when I listen to her and when we disagree, I disagree with empathy. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic story. I think we can all relate to that, where maybe we've had an argument with someone, maybe we looked down on them, we judged them, and then we got to know them and realized, oh, you've been hurt. Oh, this is why you're struggling with this. And we start to realize, I can love you now. There's something about that we can get beyond the petty arguments, and we can have some empathy, we can listen and learn. And so I think we need to evangelize. I think we need to bring Jesus to our world, yes. But I think we also need to listen to our world. We go to these people when we have these arguments about anything, abortion, the death penalty, politics, liturgy, whatever it might be that we disagree on. Let's, let's take a step back and say, but who are you? What have you been through? What are your experiences? What do you love? What are you good at? How can I get to know you as the person before I judge you for your opinion? I think we have too much partisan breaking up. We have too much um, tribalism, even within our church. And as Franciscans, we're trying to go around this country to say, We've got a lot in common. And that doesn't mean we can just be best friends. But it does mean we need to learn to love each other and listen to each other and try to build that kingdom here. And so the world needs Jesus, but it also needs empathy, being with each other. And I believe we put this into action to kill two birds with one stone with one very simple thing. The corporal works of mercy. We're all familiar with the corporal works of mercy, right? Jesus says at the end of Matthew 25, that we must serve the poor, we must feed those who are hungry, give drink to those who are thirsty, visit the sick and imprisoned. I'd like to just end this brief talk with four reasons why we do that. Four reasons why it might be the most important thing that you do with your life, and I hope that we can all discern how to do that even tomorrow. The first reason that we might do this is because Jesus told us to. All right, end of talk, right? We don't need anything more, right? If Jesus tells you to do something, we should probably just do it. He said, if you do this, you're going to heaven. If you don't, you're going to the other place. That's enough for me. I mean, there's no other place in Scripture where Jesus is so clear how you get to the kingdom. And so, if we want to be with Jesus, we've got to go serve the poor. Great. Hopefully it's a little more than that, right? Uh, I had a cousin growing up that I was forced to hang out with. My mom said I had to go hang out with him. My cousin knew this. My cousin did not want my pity, right? I don't think the poor want our pity because, oh, Jesus told you you have to hang out with me. I think there's something a little deeper here. And so the second reason is that the poor are created with the same amount of human dignity as all of us, but they often don't receive it. We believe that everyone is created in the image and likeness of God. We believe as pro-life people that everyone is a cherished being of God. But unfortunately, if you look around the world, you'll see a lot of homeless people. You will see a lot of racism. You will see a lot of poverty, a lot of objectivism, a lot of people pushed out to the margins. 
People have the same amount of dignity as everyone else, same amount of love from God, and yet the world does not recognize it. And so what Jesus wants us to do in serving the poor is to say, I want to lift you up. I want to show the world that I love you even in your struggles. Even if you deserve this in some way, how are we going to find this? You did drugs, okay. But it doesn't mean you lose your dignity. It doesn't mean you're worth any less. I still love you because Jesus loves you. I believe that this is the strongest argument we have as pro-life people. We say that that child in the womb is a child, is a human. We will defend that until the day we die. But if we go ahead and then ignore the poor, we go and ignore the person in prison, we go ignore the person who's sick and say, oh, they're, they're not worth as much, we undermine everything we do, everything we say. As Catholics, we do this not because they are worthy of anything, not because they've earned it, because God loves them, all of us, even in our weakness. And we want to make sure that they get what they deserve, get what God has given them. And so, yes, we do it because Jesus tells us to. Yes, we do it because people have human dignity that is being stripped from them, and we want to give it back. But I think it goes even deeper, and here's where it gets challenging. Reason number three is because they actually have something to teach us. That homeless man has something to teach us. That person on death row has something to teach us. It may sound strange, but there is something about being poor that Jesus identified with. There's a reason that poverty is among the Beatitudes, that being persecuted is among the Beatitudes. When you look at those eight things, you see nothing but afflictions. Anyone here thinking, oh, thank God I'm poor? Yes, hashtag blessed. Anyone doing that? Homeless today, hashtag blessed. No, no one's doing that. That's not a happy life. And yet Jesus says that is the most blessed you can be. That is where we should all want to be as Christians. And I believe that it is because it gives us a greater dependence on God. It helps us to have empathy with one another. When you lose someone you love, you can now understand what it's like to lose someone when someone else loses. You can say, honey, I, I know what you're going through. You just put your arm around someone. You don't even have to say anything. Oscar Romero said that there are certain things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. And I believe that that's very true. There are certain things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. And so Jesus wants us to weep with the poor, to weep with the sick and the sorrowful, to go and experience what they experience so that they can come and say, I went down that road. I've tried to save myself. I've tried to live as someone all after the, after the bread, you know? And it ain't working for me. This is not a good life. And so it focuses us on things that truly do matter. And so, yes, Jesus told us to. Yes, the poor need dignity. Yes, they have something to teach us about the kingdom. And hopefully, hopefully that leads us to number four, which is that empathy that leads us to actually change this world. That once you've felt what other people felt, once you've seen what they've seen, you begin to realize that no one should ever feel these things ever again. No one should ever see these things. When you look out in the world and you see homelessness, and you see racism and sexism, you see hatred and violence, it's easy to push it away once we don't see it, but once you've seen it, you realize the world should not be this way. And I've now felt it. I now am in relationship with people who go through that. I'm going to set my life so that this never happens again. And I believe that that brings us full circle. So that Jesus says... When you do these things, you enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's speaking in the here and now and in the future. Yes, it is a hoop to jump through and we will get our reward. But when we serve the poor, 
When we begin to build the kingdom right now, we begin to live in it. We begin to build a peace, a, a kingdom of peace and justice, of love and mercy and forgiveness. And we begin to see that the kingdom truly is in our midst, that it is in breaking. And we see Jesus right there with us, that we can share with the world. We see our brother and sister right there with us, and we see that we are on the right way. And so, my brothers and sisters, if we want to give something to the world, this is what I have to offer. I believe that the corporal works of mercy are where we must begin. And they're simple. They're simple, really. I'm sure there are thousands away right here in this city where we can get involved. To give our time, talent, and treasure to those who maybe don't have a lot. Probably things going on right here in this church. You do that, you are going to encounter God. You're going to encounter each other. And the kingdom is going to become very apparent to you. And so, I'm sorry that was about a thousand words a second. Uh, it was very fast. Again, that was usually about 15, it was about 45 minutes, we made it 15. But that was just to kind of push you in a direction, give you something to think about. And now, for the rest of the time, we'd love to hear from you. What do you think about what we just said? Do you have any experiences you'd like to share? What questions do you have about our tour, about being a Franciscan, about uh, evangelizing? The floor is yours. What would you like to know? Yes. Do you think it's possible like, uh, to be a successful leader, president, and like, on the way to still be a good Catholic? Oh! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, is it possible to be a world leader and Catholic at the same time? Uh, more or less. Um, yes, I, I live in hope that that is absolutely possible. Um, but I also think we, we, we do ourselves a disservice, and there's a danger in thinking in black and white things that... Um, oh, this person's a good Catholic, this person's a bad Catholic. I'm not going to be that judge. I think there are gradations, and I think we can look at any politician, any leader, and say, look, they get these things really right, and I want to support them, and they get these things a little shaky. Let's, let's challenge them on that. Um, I do think there are a lot of social pressures, and it's very difficult to try to live in a pluralistic society and serve everyone while also having a particular theology. But I do think it's possible, and maybe that person's in our room. Uh, never, never give up hope. Yes. Excellent. My father was in the Air Force, so I didn't have a choice. Um, <laughs> Neither did he. Really. Yeah, he said, "We're going to Germany." I said, like, "Great, where's that?" <laughs> I was six years old at the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's. What it was. My father was in the Air Force. I moved around with him. I lived in uh, Florida, Germany, Arizona, and then I joined the Friars. And traveled the yes? Spangdalem Air Force Base. Does anybody know it? Anybody heard of Ramstein? Okay, it's close to Ramstein. Is this Breck and George? Night. Yes? Are there any key insights or findings from your MLB tours? Insights from our tour. Um, no, so we've only been on 14 uh, games. You know, we, we talked to a handful of people each one. I don't want to make some grand unified theory of what we're doing yet. Um, but I would say we, we break it down into two categories. There are people who are Catholic and they recognize who we are and what we're doing and they love it and they're inspired by it. And it's so great to say, like, good, now you go do something. But then there's the other category, which is people who are so uncatechized that we have no idea what to do with. And so we, you know, people come up and, you know, are you Jedi? Like, no, they're not real. So like, what sort of question is that? 
Um, you know, we'll be, we'll be there drinking a beer, and they'll say, wait, you can drink? Like, we invented beer, yes, like, what do you think? Come on. You know, so when you start talking about things like abortion, or the Trinity, or, you know, Corpus Christi, or something like that, like, you're on a, such a high level compared to what the general public's understanding of faith is. And so I think it's reminding me, like, we got to go back to the basics. And we've got questions that have been somewhat scandalizing, and not not in a kind of, like, vulgar sense, but just, like, the second graders know this. Yeah. And, and, like, people hate the church because of their perceptions of this. And so I think we have a lot of work to do on just the basics. I mean, for, we assume that people understand what we're saying, but they really don't a lot of the time. Which gives me hope. It gives me hope that we can actually change minds and hearts. So where do you start when someone has no conception, really, of faith, um, you know, agnostic, atheist, something like that, and you're on a path to evangelize? I start with the cat Bible. In the beginning was the meow, and the meow was the meow. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I really do start with, like, very basic, though. Okay, so we're Catholics. You heard of the Catholics? Yes? Great. No? Okay, here we go. Um, and you try to just build from there. You really do start with, um, you try to figure out where they are. And wherever that level is, and we've only had, I think, a couple, really, uh, I would say a handful, no more than five, uh, people who just had no idea, and we just did not have the time to uh, really uh, kind of introduce them to Catholicism and the priesthood and religious orders. So we just kind of gave them cards and said, this is who we are. Hopefully they'll seek us out online. But for the most part, everyone has some level that you can just start at and chip away at it. One of the questions we've gotten a lot, a lot over the last month is, how many souls have you converted? Like, All of them. No. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's not exactly our mission, right. so to speak. We're not like keeping notches of things. And, and it, it just doesn't happen like that, except in the movies. Um, and I, I think... What we're really trying to do is to spark that relationship, to at least give a positive image of Christianity, especially when we were in Boston. Like, we were very apprehensive going to Boston, given its history. You know, we just want to show, look, the Catholic Church is normal, and we're happy, and we're healthy, and give us a second chance. Mm -hmm. And we'll plant that seed that maybe the next time they encounter the church, it'll be easier. Mm -hmm. And then the next time, it'll be better. We do not expect that people are going to fall on their hands and knees and confess themselves to Christ in the middle of the stadium. Um, but we do hope to just, I, I think when we try to convert people to anything, to a religion or to an ideology, people are not convinced by facts. They're convinced by relationships and who they trust. And so we're simply trying to be people that other people can trust. That's the first step. This was submitted from someone who could be here to me. So this is for Father Casey. He wrote that you said that your calling came to you in part as a result of interacting with the Franciscan presence on campus where you went to school at Furman. Correct. Now, he said, he's probably a decade older than you and was in the Newman group there, and there was no Franciscan presence during his time at Furman. He wanted to know what that presence was like, how it came to exist, if you know, and how it spoke to you. You know it would be really fun? We have a, a graduate of that here in the room, and she can tell you. No, she doesn't want to tell you. Um, so one of, one of our former students is here. And um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know any other campus ministry. Um, for me, it was, it was joyful, and it was casual, and it was serious all at the same time. It was a relational thing where everyone felt like they had a home. 
and we could play games, but then we could have adoration, and we could have mass, we could do service. It was just a meaningful place where I felt this, this is my home. Um, and so I don't know if other people have not had that experience, but I never felt intimidated to go there. I never felt like I was out of place. The friars just made it feel like this is where I was supposed to be. I don't know if you had, you went to Franciscan University, you went. I mean, I also was a Franciscan presence on Furman. That's yeah. true, that's true, I forgot that. Um, yeah, that, it's, I think you highlighted the really important things. It's that uh, Father Pat, who was there at the time, and myself, tried very hard to have an approachable relationship with the students who were there, and at the same time, treats the content of our life and what we were doing seriously. I think that's the balance. Having, allowing the relationships to be intimate and casual while at the same time treating what we're doing as something worth taking seriously. Um, it's a very fine needle to thread, and I miss the mark sometimes, mm -hmm. but that's kind of our approach, I think. Well, yeah, actually, that was my same question. As I'm Italian, so I know San Francisco very well. Yes, I'm we're everywhere. I'm from Chibicano, a market that's not too far from Assisi. So. Wonderful. And uh, since I was a child, I was very, very, you know, admiring the life of San Francisco and Santa Chiara. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was, the, you are actually the first months I, I, I find here in the United States, and that gave me like, uh, like joy because it reminds me of when I'm in Italy and I see a lot of you. Yes. And so I wondered, um, yeah, how you discover the message. And now I'm learning that it's from school, right? And um, and if you've been to Assisi, of course you've been. Was <laughs> great. We, we have very different experiences and yet very similar experiences. So yeah, I'm sure how you met the friars. Um, <laughs> so I met the Franciscans uh, in high school initially. My high school was founded by the Franciscans out in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, but uh, they were no longer running it when I was there. And the Franciscans that I got to know were awesome and crazy. Mm -hmm. um, Sounds about right. Which in high school was just awesome. As an adult, I was like, oh, okay. And so um, when I, as, as I got to know them, I was just like, these guys are just a little too quirky for me, which is ironic now thinking about how I am. But someone's saying that about you too. I know. And I deserve it. Um, but so. When I initially started thinking about the Franciscans, I was like, I don't know about these guys, but there's guys over on the East Coast, and I was originally from the east side of the country, so I'm gonna go back there. And I uh, first started in Steubenville, Franciscan University, where I got to know some Franciscans, and while I was there, I got to know um, an OFM friar who really inspired me, who was just kind of the perfect big brother, um, and as someone who is an actual big brother, I was, uh, really inspired by him because he was just so much better at it than I was. <laughs> and so I was like, this is the guy, like, I want to be with this guy. I want to be with him and his brothers and that community. So I joined the OFMs. Yeah. And, uh, just to add a note, it's like, as there are also Clarice nuns. Uh -huh. And what I found out during my life is that the monastery of San Francisco and Santa Chiara was full of young people. Well, when you go to other movements, you see a lot of old people. So uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that you know the message of San Francisco is still alive. And I wonder if there are a lot of young people having the vocation of donate their life for the message. Yeah, I mean, 
to say I'm not the youngest. There are definitely people coming behind me, and it's been my, my life's work in just 10 years to make sure I'm not the one turning off the lights at the end of the day. Uh, there, there should be someone coming after me, and we're, we're in an uphill battle of secularization in our country. I mean, you just look at our churches. It's hard to find young people in general, let alone those who want to take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so some orders are struggling a lot. Some are doing really, really well. We're like a bee. Like, we're doing better than average. Uh, we've got maybe five or six people that enter every year. We solemnly profess maybe uh, one or two every single year, ordaining one or two every single year. So there is a, an influx of people, and so it's good to see that so, you know, some orders, they haven't had a vocation in 30 years. And at some point you get to a point of no return. We're happy to see a, 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 a spirit that continues to grow. Yes? It's one of those things that builds upon itself. It's it's a movement that um, sometimes you got to be the first and step outside there. But then when you start to see people who look like you, it makes it much easier, and then it makes it much easier. And then it's, at some point, it's a thing that you have to do because everyone's doing it. And so I wonder where you all might be in that step. You know, you might be the one who has to step out on the limb, or you might be that second person who has to encourage that first person. So now you're a couple, or maybe you're that third person who makes it a movement. It makes it uh, the cool thing to do. Uh, we all, all have our part to play, but I, I do think it involves some risks, uh, and it certainly makes it easier when we have some young people. It was helpful for me when I entered to know that there was a guy who was 30, and so I was 22, we were just, just uh, a few eight years off, and I related to him, and I knew I wasn't going to be the only young one. Um, but it was also a risk, because that's still a gap. And so I was thankful that other people joined, and now people can look at Father Tito and I and say, oh, it's not just 60-year-olds, not just 80-year-olds. There's, you know, a de slightly decrepit guy and a young guy, you know, <laughs> close enough. 
he says this, I've only got a two-year head start. Yeah. Yes? Um, usually the humility of God. Um, so that, that's the crib and the cross, and just the, the poor Jesus, the humble Jesus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about something that came to mind. The fancy infant of Prague Jesus? Yeah, that one. Ready for um, his fashion show? No. Uh, there is an image that came to mind, and I don't want to say that this is the actual image, because it's not, but it inspired a reflection for me, so I'll share it. Um, and I apologize if I scandalize anyone right Uh-oh. Now. Should we all sit down? Has anyone seen the show American Gods? Nope? Okay. In that show, it's uh, based on a book by Neil Gaiman, who uh, writes a, you know, fantasy and sci-fi and that kind of a thing. And in that show, um, the, there's these gods that basically are creations of humans' imagination. So they're born from human desire to worship something, basically, right? Um, and it goes like through Thor and Odin and Loki, all the way through, you know, including Jesus. And what's fascinating about it is it's a reflection on what we worship. So it, it, he's not saying that you know Jesus is in is our imagination, but um, basically kind of personifying what we're picturing when we look at Jesus. And so there's all these different versions of Jesus. And it's really fascinating because there's some that literally glow everywhere they walk. It's kind of comedic. Um, if y'all haven't watched the show, it may not be for you. It's very dark. It's very gruesome. I said the crib and the cross. Where are you going with this? There is, well, <laughs> because there is, um, it was just in the book, it's just a, a note, but they actually made it a whole scene in the, move, in the show. Um, there's uh, Mexicans who are crossing the Rio Grande trying to come over. Uh, in the book it says, um, the, ver the version of Jesus that identifies with the poor crossed over with the Mexicans on the Rio Grande. That's all that line is. But they show it and they make it a scene. And it's just this very, very powerful moment where um, they're being, uh, they're crossing and then they're getting arrested on the other side. And there's Jesus, who you, you can kind of tell that it's Jesus, although it's not explicit, um, getting arrested with them. That's an image that I keep in mind, that Jesus is always with the poor, with the incarcerated, um, that Jesus is with the uh, outcast, because that's where he was during his life as, in his ministry. Good save. Thank you. <laughs> yes? Resistance to 
Yeah, so your question is, uh, at what point do we stand against it and do, do we make sure we have the spiritual works of mercy? The answer for me is immediately and always. Um, so in Pope Francis's book, Let Us Dream, he says, we cannot compromise. There is never room for compromise um, with our values. We never say, okay, I guess we'll let this thing go. We can compromise in the way we negotiate, in the way we talk, and we move forward, but never in an ultimate sense. And so if we see evil in the world, we can't tolerate evil. We see evil in our brother and sister, we can't tolerate it. I think that's, that's pretty clear. The question is how we do it. And that's what I'm more interested in. Now, where I think Pope Francis is a great example of this is it, it's about journeying together. And it's something I talked about in chapter six or seven, is about seeking liberation not only for us, but for those who hurt us. And so those who do evil are trapped in something. So how do we not just wag the finger and say, you do evil, but also recognize why are they doing this? What is trapping them? How can I offer that uh, freedom from oppression? And so there's a story I like to tell about St. Francis and the Wolf of Gubbio. Anyone ever heard this story? It's a classic kid's story. It's a great one. And I think it has a great meaning for us in that Francis went to the city and there was this ravaging wolf attacking people. And people were so afraid to hid inside their walls. And so Francis said, well, this, this can't do. So he went out and he made the sign of the cross and he prayed to God to give him guidance. And he went out and found the wolf and he admonished that wolf. You do evil in the sight of God. You attack human beings. You are terrible. Stop what you're doing. And I think we all like that part, right? We're good at wagging the figure. We're good at putting people down. Stop your evil, you know, the division of our world. But what's most important is he did the next step, which is that he recognized that the wolf was hungry and the wolf was lonely. And so he went to the townspeople and said, if the wolf agrees to it, will you feed him and he won't attack you? And so the townspeople decide for the rest of the wolf's life that they fed it food and there was never any violence again. And so I think that we need those both hands where we can look to the world and say, stop your evil. But maybe get behind it and say, but why do you do this? What's behind this? What is trapping you that I can help free you from it? And so what it does is it admonishes with love to recognize that's my brother or sister that I'm admonishing. And I can't just throw them out. I can't just condemn them. I got to free them as well. And ultimately, you know, Jesus is freeing them in an ultimate sense. But how do we free them from their vices and the things that they're blind to? That's a really challenging question, but I don't think we can ever let anyone go. Not sure if you have anything to add. Um, I just kind of look at it from like the online sphere, right? There's oh, forget people, that. Block, block, and unsubscribe. There's those people, people who, uh, <laughs> who everyone has a moment where they like to get into an argument online. There's some people who do it consistently. There's times where I see the same names popping up regularly, just um, being antagonistic. Uh, berating people, basically trolls, right? Um, and I hated trolls. Mm -hmm. Couldn't stand them. I'm like, what, what's this person's deal? Why? Why are they constantly doing this? And I realized one time, no one who's had a super awesome life go, wakes up in the morning and goes, today I'm going to ruin people's day online. <laughs> That's not a normal thing to do, That's right? That's not a normal thing to do. <laughs> So if someone is that miserable that they get spend significant amount of time online making other people miserable and arguing with them, something led to that. There's some brokenness there. And it's, it doesn't make the immediate reaction any easier. I'm still like, ah, oh, this person. Yeah. Let, Let me I, tell you something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are times where I will type up a response and go, hmm, delete, delete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All my best days. But 
But yeah, but it, I, I'm always able to, after some time, after I've calmed down, go, this person's had it rough. Because that's the only explanation as to why someone is going to go online and just make other people miserable. Because they're miserable. And so as much as I want to get online and just go, you know what, this is what I think. Usually I end up just saying, you know what, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm sorry that, you know, this is bothering you. This is how I feel. And, you know, I hope that we can come to an understanding at some point. And that's how I respond. Um, I don't try to respond with any... Uh, equal aggression or equal argumentative voice, I try to keep it calm, I try to keep it peaceful. Not because I agree with them. I say, you know, I'm sorry that, this how you feel, that, that you see it that way, but this is how I feel. I'm very clear, like, I'm not apologizing for my feelings or what I've said, um, but I'm apologizing that it's bringing out this emotional reaction in you. And hopefully, one day we can actually engage in dialogue. Meanwhile, he had a 15-minute conversation with a bot and just wasted his time. But, yeah, but that's, that's so important and so difficult online. Yes? So, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of your YouTube channel. I, um, I echo what Jack guy over there said. It's, it's neat to see you in the flesh. My question's kind of about sort of like YouTube and social media in general. Like, I'm sure a lot of people in this group can agree and can relate to this, but I'm just always on my phone. TikTok you, is so addictive. I've tried so many different, like I've tried turning off notifications. I, mm -hmm. How do you suggest breaking up with the phone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great tool. Uh, and there's a great opportunity for it, but it is very addicting. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, don't, I don't know if I have the best advice because I'm on it, but I've never really felt a sense like, oh my gosh, it's been three hours. Like I just have other things to do, and I like to read, and I do other things. Maybe just setting limits sometimes and just say, I can be on it from this time to this time. I can have so many scrolls. That can be helpful. Um, or just balancing it with other things. I have to spend the same amount of time in prayer that I'm on TikTok. You know, you might spend less time on TikTok. I don't know. Uh, more time in prayer. So either way, it's a great thing. Um, I, you're on your phone constantly. I am. <laughs> because one of my triggers is, I say trigger, what, what gets me started, excuse me, what gets me started is I'll get a text. Right? And so I'm open up my phone, I'm like, oh, let me reply to this. And then, you know, I'm like, well, uh, I've also got this other thing, so let me do that really quickly. I've got this, oh, an email came in. And then, you know, I've forgotten that I'm in the middle of a conversation, and I'm, I only meant to respond to a text, and now I'm back on TikTok. Oh, that's funny. Um, so I think when, I'm, when I have a healthy balance with it, I'm able to remember what it is I pulled my phone out for, what I'm doing, and then just do that and go back to it. Um, and I have times of the day where I can, like, okay, now I'm going to spend the next you know, 15, 20 minutes just kind of having fun and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's really easy to fill dead space with, um, with the phone, and that's a challenge. So I try to remind myself, and I've been on a, you know, not great swing lately. I noticed it um, uh, about a week ago. I was like, I need to check this. You know, again, because I'm you know, spending a lot of time on my phone. But uh, just kind of being aware of, okay, when I'm going to respond to a text, I'm just going to respond to the text and put the phone away, and I'll do other stuff later. I just had an idea. I, I don't know if there are any app developers here. Maybe you can do this. Or maybe it's a terrible idea. We should set a function on TikTok or Instagram or whatever. Whenever you click it, your phone locks for five minutes. 
And so you can't do anything else. You have to wait, and it's delayed gratification. But now you have nothing to do but sit in silence and pray for five minutes. And then you get your reward for TikTok, but at least start you off on a, I'm going to enter this public sphere as a grounded person. I don't know. Someone someone would yeah. that. Yeah. Yes? Uh, sort of related, but do you have any like tips for how to sort of break bad habits and build good habits, like spiritual or otherwise? Yeah, let's see. Um, I have an hour talk on this. Let's see if I remember any of the points. Um, I think you can look at any vices you have and try to do the opposite. So that's what habits and, uh, they're all habits, so vices and virtues are the opposites. So what is the vice that you're struggling with? Find the corresponding virtue and lean into that. Uh, I think that's the first thing. Tia's going to say something. I'm going to remember what I really wanted to say. I was just going to kind of double down on that, basically. Great. Like when, you want to repl- when you want to get rid of a bad habit, just stopping is possible, um, but it's much easier if you replace it with a good habit. Um, so like when you want to, and you know, one of the things that I wanted to do was pray more, right? But you know, just sitting there and praying more, uh, wasn't working for me. So I started journaling, started writing. And now I write pretty regularly every evening. And so that helps me. So finding not just a thing that I want to get rid of or want to change, but how do I, how can I be making an activity, a positive thing rather than just, uh, cutting this out? I think it's also to remember that, um, two things. One, be patient with yourself because you probably took 10 years to develop this habit, so you're not just going to get rid of it immediately. So it's going to take time to work through it and to retrain yourself. Um, and the other thing is probably more important to, to find where the habit comes from. And a lot of times it's from a place of insecurity or trauma or something that you're trying to fill in something that's lacking. And we see this a lot when people who are in AA, great, like you're in recovery, you're not drinking anymore, but now you're smoking. Okay, now you're, now you're not smoking. You're on the patch, you get over that, and now you're drinking 13 Diet Cokes a day. And they're like, all right, I'm not doing that, but it's always trying to fill in that thing. And so I think that's something particularly with addiction, if you go that far, which get to the heart of it. What, what is unfulfilled? What is it that you're trying to constantly fill from the constant scrolling or the biting your fingernails or you know, whatever that habit might be? Um, what, what's lacking? How can we fill it in in a way that can be filled in? Yes. On your uh, on your tour so far, mm-hmm. what's been the most challenging interaction you've had? Besides with him? And how did you deal with it? Um the one comes to mind is we is just the strangest situation. We met a man who thought we were Jedi <laughs> and then we, we go through the normal thing and it turns out he's Jewish. And so I immediately get kind of apprehensive because, like, I'm not about to be proselytizing Jews. Like, that's just not, like, all right, cool, chosen people. No, and just, like, I, I don't need to be in that space. Um, and we've been told as a church not to do that. But, you know, having a conversation. But very quickly it turned out he was proselytizing us. And he was telling us why Christianity was wrong and why Jews were right. And I'm like, this is not like a Jew I've ever met. And it turns out he used to be a Christian. Like, ah, now I see. Um, So that was an odd one where I wanted to be patient and I wanted to say, like, okay, you see this and, you know, that's great that you see it from this perspective. Here's how we see it. But it was going nowhere. And so I didn't want to be dismissive, but I also didn't want that conversation to go along any longer. So just kind of polite and give the social cues, like, well, great, it's nice to meet you. Oh, gosh, we're still doing this. Um, But sometimes people are lonely and they just need to talk. 
And so that's what you need to recognize as well. It's not about the conversation. It's about this man just needed someone to talk to, and that was fruitful. Have you any, which you think your hardest interaction? I think that was it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it happened recently, too. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it was just odd because um, we, we went in circles very, we went in a circle very quickly, and then we repeated the circle many times. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of related to that, what was your best experience that you've had um, I heard a confession in the stadium uh, one day. Some guy came up, and he had seen a few of my videos, and he was starting to get back into faith, and he says, you know, I, I have to admit, I haven't been to church in 25 years. And I said, oh, wow, well, you know, something's stirring you, so what's going on? So we had a little conversation. He said, I just feel, you know, for the sake of my kid and, you know, for my own faith, I need to come back. What do I do? And I said, well, you know, you probably talk to your parish priest or try to get involved. And I said, you probably want to go to confession. You know, there's probably a lot of things there. And he says, well, how do I do that? We can do it right now. <laughs> we just So we found a quiet spot. We put our beers down, and I heard his confession right there in the stadium. And it was just so oddly powerful. Um, and and I, those are always my best confessions, where someone walks in and says, you know, Father, I haven't been in 20, 30, 50 years. I had a confession once. Someone hadn't been in 60 years. Like, All right, well, <laughs> let's get started here, you know? <laughs> Anything for you meaningful? Obviously spending time with me, but besides yeah, that? That's the best. Uh-huh. The best. Um, I, uh, for me, what was meaningful, it wasn't a specific encounter, but just our time in Boston at Fenway Park, because I'd lived there before, and while I knew many wonderful people living there, and I got to know some awesome people who were very, very faithful, I also experienced some of the brokenness um, as a result of decisions that the church there had made, and seeing the positivity and the openness towards us when we were there again and it's been it's been about five or six years since I've lived there mm-hmm. um, so just seeing that change in the past five or six years was really really powerful for me just seeing like the church is healing there I think Cardinal Sean has done a phenomenal job mm-hmm. to help that yeah so that really meant a lot to me so another hand yeah. somewhere in here oh, yes The harshest criticism we had from a peer, you said? Um, well, I mean, I've told this story a couple times this summer. When I was a freshman in college, uh, I came in very excited about the faith, and I came from a really big high school that had 150 young people, high schoolers, coming to every Sunday night meeting. We had 200 people on retreats. It was a life teen thing, so it was just like very out there. And I came to a college that was very small, not doing any of that. And so I came with all these ideas, and I was given some freedom to try them, and they failed. They just failed miserably, and no one showed up, and it just didn't work. And I remember the priest pulling me aside at one point, and he said, um, you're going to be a great leader someday, but that day is not today. And it was very humbling. Um, and he encouraged me to, as we talked about a little bit tonight, to listen a little bit more and to realize that maybe college ministry is different than high school ministry. And I keep that in mind every new place I go, that, yeah, this worked there, but it may not work here. And I've got to get to know people, and I've got to get to know what they want and what the world needs, because even if it worked in the exact same place five years different, it might be a different thing. So um, I'm going to answer one half of the question from a mentor that I needed to listen a lot more. I'll take the peer side of that. Yeah. Um, so around the same time, actually, when I was about a... 
18, I would say 19 years old, um, so just out of high school. I had a friend who I had known since junior high, um, and she started dating this guy. I was like, oh, cool, when can I meet him? She goes, oh, yeah, no. And I was like, <laughs> not you. Um, why not? She goes, because you're going to make him feel like an idiot. And I was like, what? And she goes, yeah, you have this way when uh, <laughs> when uh, you're talking to people, if they say something wrong, of making it seem like absolutely ridiculous, and you're going to make them feel like an idiot. So no. And I was like, wow. I didn't know that about myself. I, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that I did that. And uh, had mostly had to do with my sarcasm. And I was like, I need to probably rein that in. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am still sarcastic, but not towards other people. <laughs> Mostly towards myself, um, and uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I always thought of myself as you know easy to talk to and get along, casual and stuff like that. But I didn't realize that my sarcasm was that vital. So uh, I'm glad I have her as a friend uh, because she would just say things bluntly like that, and that's what I need sometimes. So it's uh, 9:36 now. Uh, I don't know if you have a, an exit strategy here. I know some people need to go. We're happy to hang out a little longer, but I don't know if there's. Yeah. Wonderful. So yeah, uh, are you volunteering to pray? Is that what I heard? <laughs> Fantastic. Amen. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Please, please take all the stickers that are back there. We, don't, we ordered way too many. Take handfuls for your friends.